Hey, hey you, this is Steve. Got a secret for you. This episode, it's an April Fool's Day joke. Don't take it too seriously. It was originally launched on April 1st. So before you unsubscribe from the podcast in a fit of rage or send me hate mail about the content of this episode, not intended to be taken seriously, if you want actual useful information, just skip to the next episode in the feed. Hey, welcome to BJJ Mental Models, episode 119. I'm Steve Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent jiu-jitsu approach. Back again, a fan favorite, Jeff Shaw from Bellingham BJJ, also from Dirty White Belt Radio. Jeff, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Steve. Thanks again for having me on. I, you know, I love you having you on. Well, I love you, but I also love having you on because you've got like a proper podcast mic headphone setup, and that just makes editing a lot easier. Anything I could do to make your life easier, I'm going <laughs> to yeah. do. So. Well, we've had a topic that we wanted to talk about for a while today, and I think this is one of those things that is something that most people in the jiu-jitsu community would really benefit from considering, but something that oddly has not really been talked about a lot. I mean, in the past decade or so, there's been an emergence of cross-training in jiu-jitsu, trying to take techniques as they work from other grappling arts. And the one art that has never really come up in this conversation, much to my surprise, is professional wrestling. Now, fans of the podcast and longtime listeners will know that I am a big professional wrestling fan, and you also are, Jeff, which is why we got talking about this and started thinking, how can we introduce some of the concepts from the sport of kings into the gentle art? How can we start to allow people to see what makes pro wrestling work and how they can adapt that into the sport that we all know and love, which is Brazilian jiu-jitsu? And I think there is a a significant room for cross-pollination there that most people probably haven't even thought about. I completely agree. Now, given enough time and resources, I think everybody should train every martial art. We'd want the best insights of striking from Muay Thai, of wrestling from American folk style wrestling, of grappling, Brazilian jiu-jitsu. But it's interesting how many arts, particularly traditionally practiced martial arts, are excluded from this. And I, I would name Aikido as one. Somebody like Dave Camarillo, well-respected throughout the martial arts world, has started training Aikido. And professional wrestling is another. Professional wrestling has a rich history of the world over. And as you know, I'm somebody that's really interested in the history of martial arts. So one of the things I'm excited to talk about is not just the efficacy of professional wrestling techniques, but also about how the history of professional wrestling intertwines in unexpected ways with these other arts that we all know and love and how pro wrestling can, in fact, uh, provide the type of base that you talk about to for us to continue our martial arts educations. Yeah, the interesting thing is when people talk about like a base, oftentimes this comes up in the context of MMA, right? Because most people who get into MMA Usually they don't, at least in the original generation, you know, there wasn't like an MMA club you could go to join necessarily. So a lot of the time you would have people who came in with a jujitsu background or an amateur wrestling background or a kickboxing background. And there definitely were people who came in with professional wrestling backgrounds. And I think that's an important distinction to draw here is that not all wrestling is the same, right? When you talk about these guys who go on to the Olympics, it's important to understand that this is all done at an amateur level, right? These are not professionals using this technique. 
there is a whole separate tier and it's quite different of professional wrestlers where there's a different skill set involved. There's different concerns. And from my experience watching this stuff, it's just as applicable to jujitsu and MMA as the amateur stuff. And in fact, maybe even more so because professional wrestling has a lot more variables that go into the match that you don't see from amateur wrestling. So it kind of gives you a more broader, diverse skill set. And that's why I think it makes such an effective base. But I guess before we get into this, Jeff, something that we need to dispel, you know, there's a lot of mythology around a lot of martial arts. And on this podcast, we try to dispel a lot of the mythology around jujitsu. But I think we need to start by dispelling one of the common myths about professional wrestling, which is that it's fake. Usually when I bring up pro wrestling as a base, people come back and they say, oh, well, that stuff is fake or it's scripted. And I always find that to be such a challenging thing to hear because I mean, when you watch pro wrestling, you can clearly see that these guys are like hurt and they're bleeding and they're injured, just like any other athlete, right? It clearly is real, but maybe you could kind of take us through this process. Help me get, put some arrows in my quiver here. How can we explain to people that this is just as legitimate an art as say amateur wrestling? Let me give you three examples from across the time, some modern, some less so. And I think that if we look back to the roots, which we'll get to in a second, it's probably the best argumentative tool we can have in the arsenal. But even starting from the modern era, this is why I have so much respect for athletes such as Kurt Angle, athletes such as Brock Lesnar, who have had success not just in the amateur ranks, but also in the professional ranks, sort of going to both sides of it. But it's not just them. We're hundreds of years ago, a little more than about about 120 years ago, Mitsuyo Maeda, widely known known as the judica who brought what we now know as Brazilian jiu-jitsu to Brazil, uh, traveled to Asheville, North Carolina on November 6, 1905. Now, why did he travel there? He traveled there to visit a professional wrestler, his friend Akitaro Ono. And those two trained together. There's uh, photographs of the time of Ono and Maeda doing easily recognized as professional wrestling techniques, the hammerlock, the front chancery, these things that professional wrestlers have taught and used throughout the years. The classic example, too, and this is interesting, too. It's interesting to me always when jujitsu folks who pride ourselves on being extremely open-minded and we all we care about is the functional art, what works. If it works, we incorporate it. If it doesn't, we we cast it out. It has saddened me to see jujitsu guys become so dogmatic and sort of jujitsu fundamentalists where we think only jujitsu can work. And the reason, you know, in the early UFCs, everybody saw Hoist Gracie do these techniques to bigger, stronger, more aggressive of opponents. And so the evidence of our eyes told us that jujitsu worked. Well, now if someone walked into a jujitsu gym and they said, well, I don't think a choke works, there are dozens, hundreds of, probably dozens of guys in your own academy who would delight in demonstrating this to them. There's a famous incident in America from the 80s when the reporter John Stossel said to Dr. D. David Schultz, well, you know, I think it's fake. And through a simple, what we would call a collar and elbow tie, Stossel had his attitude completely rearranged. And I just don't see how anybody could watch incidents like that across, you know, 115, 120-year period and not understand the strength of professional wrestling. But if you don't believe me, you could always ask Kazushi Sakuraba, who, when challenged on it by a Japanese reporter, said, in fact, professional wrestling is strong. Yeah, yeah. And it's also worth pointing out the famous incident where Hulk Hogan choked Richard Belzer out cold on his own show. He put him in jujitsu language, we would call like a, a front guillotine or something. In the world of wrestling, they would call that like, you know, like a front chin lock or something. And he just choked the guy out cold on his own show. So it's absolutely legitimate. And even coming up to relatively modern times, I mean, Brock Lesnar is a great example, a guy who tore it up on the amateur wrestling scene, 
then tore it up on the professional wrestling scene. And then after succeeding in both of those, both of those disciplines went into MMA and he tore it up there. And you've had people do the opposite. For example, you know, Ronda Rousey comes to mind. Matt Riddle comes to mind. Shayna Baszler comes to mind. People who had tremendous success in MMA and then cross-pollinated into professional wrestling and had success there. So again, I find it interesting that jujitsu people are all about what's pragmatic and what works, but we have all of this evidence that professional wrestling is a, a very legitimate combat sport and a combat base, but yet it gets just disregarded for reasons that I just can't quite get my head around. Yeah, let's give some credit to the pioneers too. Ken Shamrock, one of the pioneers of modern mixed martial arts, founded what we would call the first fight camp, the Lions Den, also one of the first to make the transition of professional wrestling. His rival, Dan Severn, the Beast, fought Hoist Gracie in the early UFCs, fought Shamrock, fought other legends of the art, then, you know, also was a Division I wrestler at Michigan State. And so these are the folks that you see making these transitions. And that is the sort of you know, that's the sort of evidence that I'm looking for to see that this stuff is applicable beyond the singular art that we look at. Yeah. And I guess another aspect going beyond just the athletics, I think another reason why people often are skeptical about pro wrestling is just the larger than life aspect of some of the personalities involved and people thinking, well, no one could really be like that. But I would challenge anyone to you know, have you been paying attention for the past 10 years in fight sports? I mean, have you been paying attention to Chael Sonnen or Gordon Ryan or Josh Koscheck or any of these guys who use the same techniques that professional wrestlers have used for ages? I mean, one thing that professional wrestlers understand that a lot of other athletes don't is the psychology around presentation and charisma and how to get inside your opponent's head and how to market a fight. I mean, Muhammad Ali was a larger-than-life character, and no one ever accused him of being fake, right? But for some yeah. reason, professional wrestlers, because they have these bombastic personalities, people assume this must be some sort of performance art when, in reality, it is a top-tier, elite-level grappling competition. You know, the real world is faker than wrestling, as smarter men than me have said. And But it goes beyond the character issue, although you point out that's a valid point about the larger-than-life characters maybe lulling people into a false sense of security. It's the techniques itself. And I would just say this. Techniques don't get banned because those techniques are ineffective. And so why did the IBJJF ban the mandible claw in the 1990s if, if it were not an effective technique? The rationale they gave at the time was that by manipulating the tongue and the nerves inside the jaw, that the mandible claw was a small joint manipulation and therefore banned under the rules. But you know, a lot of people said and continue to say to this day that the reason it was banned was guys that were for the same reason that the double leg was banned in judo competitions. When wrestlers would come in and start double legging accomplished judo black belts in order to protect their art, you know, the technique was too effective. And that's why you don't see mandible claws in jujitsu competitions these days. Yeah, I have certainly had success actually adapting some pro wrestling techniques. I mean, I've submitted many people with the Anaconda Vice. I've submitted at least one person with the sharpshooter, although I'm still working on the entry. I've used the figure four effectively. And I think a lot of people, because these are not holds that were popularized by the Gracies. No one ever really takes the time to train them. But if you actually analyze them from a conceptual basis, you understand that these are the same alignment breaking principles that all of the Gracie techniques used. It's just that they came from a different kind of family, right? So the reality is if we spend all of our time training arm bars and guillotines and triangle chokes, we're just going to be a lot better at those than Boston crabs or mandible claws, right? But in reality, as you know, as John Jones once said, 
he trains low percentage techniques until they become high percentage. And the only reason I would argue that we think these techniques are low percentage is because we don't have many people in the art who are good enough to use them at high levels because they don't train them. So it creates a self-fulfilling prophecy. And I mean, a perfect example you brought up was like Kazushi Sakuraba. I forever remember when he fought Vitor Belfort and Vitor just got so frustrated that eventually he just pulled guard and just sat there. And the most beautiful thing I ever saw, Kazushi Sakuraba, rather than like sitting down in the guy's guard or going for ground and pound, he just straight up drop kicked him in the face. Like it was amazing. He just did like a basement drop kick right into Vitor Belfort's face. And Kazushi ultimately went on to, to win that fight, right? So it's a great example of how the failure of these techniques to work in high level competition, it's not a failure of the technique. It's a failure of imagination and of our understanding of how to train these things properly. So when I teach classes, I always make sure to allocate just like I do for stand up or judo or, you know, all of this other stuff. I make sure that I always allocate a bit of time to integrate professional wrestling tactics and strategies into my gym. This is something that wrestling doesn't get enough credit for in that I think wrestling was ahead of the game in terms of analytics about what is truly effective. One of the things I did on Dirty White Belt Radio was I analyzed more than 5,000 jiu-jitsu matches. You can still see the results of this study on the internet to figure out what the most commonly used and successful techniques in submission-only matches were. And I put out a graph and I felt really happy with myself that I had done this groundbreaking research. What I didn't know was that two decades prior to that, Alexandra York of the York Foundation, uh, along with Richard Morton and other members of her stable, had input professional wrestling techniques into a computer and had analyzed the most match-effective techniques. And so it's just another example of how something like this can be cutting-edge. And to your point about perception, because wrestling is so bombastic and so intent on spectacle and appearance, we sometimes don't give it the credit it deserves, but so was pride, right? Pride had incredible intense walkouts and pyro and all that stuff. It doesn't mean the fights were any less legitimate. Well, this is something that I think maybe we can pontificate on a bit, and that is the importance of your entrance. This is something that in jiu-jitsu, with the exception of a few tournaments, not enough thought is put into. Now, there is a whole martial art, a whole Japanese martial art about the art of drawing the sword. The idea being that if you're good enough at drawing your weapon, you can win the fight before it even begins. And that kind of like prevention technique is a very, very powerful strategy because the best fight that you can get into is the one you don't have to get into, right? It's always better to win before you even start. And that's where entrances come into play. And this is actually one of the areas of weakness in my mind of the modern UFC area. When they started getting the Reebok sponsorship, they watered everything down, everyone got the same entrance. But the power of a bombastic entrance it's psychologically, it pumps you up, it gets the crowd on your side, which will pump you up more. And it's super intimidating to your opponent, right? Like if some schmuck walks out into the bullpen and he's just sitting there wearing his headphones and his gi, that doesn't intimidate me. But if he comes out with like roaring entrance music and pyro and maybe a manager or a valet accompanying him to the ring, like now I know I'm in for a real fight, right? Like this is Russell Crowe in gladiator type shit. And that art of using your entrance to tilt the fight in your favor is something that pro wrestlers are so good at, but most people in BJJ just haven't even considered adding into their arsenal. 
You know, one of the only jujitsu coaches that I know of that gets this is Jason Culbreth from North Carolina. And Jason Culbreth is essentially the reincarnation of Jim Cornette, although Jim Cornette's not dead. And the kind of trash talking, the kind of taking your opponent out of your game, I think is an extremely valid point. One of my coaches, Jake Whitfield, who is hip to all of this stuff, Jake has an encyclopedic knowledge of techniques of jujitsu, of professional wrestling. His striking is excellent. But one of my only regrets about having Jake as a coach is I could never talk him into having a tennis racket when he would go and coach me for matches. And I could never figure out why he was resistant to that, but it just didn't fit with his personal style. And you sort of have to give people the freedom to be who they are, I guess. Well, this is something that I know has bled a little bit into jujitsu, and that is the importance of a valet or a coach or a manager, because having the right person accompany you to the match can really alter the state of the match. I mean, most people, you know, when they have a coach, the kind of jujitsu etiquette is that the coach is supposed to, you know, be respectful and quiet and just kind of sit there and maybe give a few pointers here and there. But that's really, I think, failing to learn some of the lessons that pro wrestling can teach us about what a good manager or valet can give you. Like you want a good manager to be there and to be involved. You want them to be screaming. You want them to be trying to psych out your opponent. You want them ideally to be trying to tilt the fight in your favor, right? You want them to be trying to distract the ref so that you can pull the ref out of their game. You want them to bias the ref towards you. Ideally, I mean, you want them to pull the ref's attention away so that maybe you can put a little bit more oomph onto techniques and ways that the ref wouldn't appreciate. And you will see some grapplers uh, do this where their coaches will come in and they'll be acting like total lunatics and screaming and shouting and throwing tantrums. Like that's ultimately a lesson we can learn from pro wrestling, which is that the people you bring to the ring, they're not there to just sit there like statues. They should be getting involved to tilt the match in your favor as much as humanly possible. In 2012, the IBJJF banned talking to the refs for just this reason. The techniques were becoming too effective. And I think this was after Andre Galvao jumped the barricade at the Worlds, perhaps, you know, in a desire to do exactly what you're describing. But I think we're seeing another example of how sport jujitsu is sort of reacting to the efficacy of these techniques. And I'd like to transition to something you talked about earlier, which is the value of professional wrestling in a self-defense situation. You know, everybody here that's listening has probably, if not competed, you know, most people have competed once or twice, but, you know, we, we love the sport of jujitsu. But unless you're at a very traditional school or a school that focuses on that aspect, you're not always going to talk about self-defense. And this is something that the roots of professional wrestling are truly versed in because there are no holds barred matches are as old as the sport. And if there are no holds barred, that's the truest self-defense situation you can find yourself in. Definitely, definitely. I mean, as far as we know, the origin of pro wrestling, a martial art with hundreds of years of history, is in carnivals, where basically there would be a tough guy that would come in, and he would be the the pro wrestler, and he would basically take on all comers. And at some point over the decades, this persistent myth about the whole thing being fake or preordained came up. But like, I think we've established already, this sport is just as legit as any others. And self-defense is such an important thing to talk about when we're talking about pro wrestling. I mean, I know that the marketing for jujitsu is that it's this very effective self-defense art. And I want to be clear, everyone who listens to this podcast knows I love jujitsu, right? I wouldn't have hung around long enough to get a black belt if I didn't. I wouldn't be doing this podcast if I didn't love jujitsu. So I give this criticism from a place of love and wanting everyone to get better. Jiu-jitsu is just simply not as effective a martial art for self-defense as we think it is, right? If you look at the techniques that we use, like guillotines, arm bars, triangle chokes, 
we've been taught that these things are basically kill shots, right? That like once you get these, the fight is done. But a lot of that is kind of Gracie propaganda. And we really only believe that because the rules from our, our martial art, which is jujitsu, they shelter us from what can really happen. Like if you watch professional wrestling, if you try to guillotine someone, they're going to suplex you. If you try to armbar someone or triangle someone, they're just going to pick you up and powerbomb you. The reality is most jujitsu athletes are not great athletes. They're amateurs. So they simply lack the athleticism to do those power moves. But professional wrestlers are by definition, professionals. These are true elite level athletes. And that's why every once in a while, when you see someone who's strong enough, you'll see this in the UFC, where someone will try a triangle and they just get power bombed. Because against a good athlete, that is always on the table. And we shelter ourselves from those possibilities in jujitsu by doing things like banning slams arbitrarily. And that's a very important consideration for self-defense because that's such a valid way to get out of these, get out of these situations. And it's also worth bearing in mind too, that that professional wrestling takes into account much more realistic self-defense scenarios, right? A real self-defense scenario that you get in, it's not going to be some IBJJF sanctioned fight. What's actually going to happen is you're going to be on the street. There's going to be strikes involved. It's going to be ugly. There might be weapons involved. There might be two-on-ones, right? And pro wrestling takes that into account. Their pro wrestling has situations where you might get hit with a steel folding chair or someone might bring out thumbtacks or something, or maybe the manager or the person's girlfriend is going to come in and try kicking your ass, right? Pro wrestling takes into account the realities of a real fight in a way that jujitsu doesn't. And I worry that modern jujitsu is becoming sanitized much the way that judo is to the example you brought up earlier with the double leg being removed. You know, a guy might have a loaded boot. This is a thing that happens in competition. It happens in the street. It's one reason that we have a picture of Patrick Swayze in my gym is I make everybody watch Roadhouse before we, we start training, you know, to keep your eye on the boot. In professional wrestling, the equivalent of having a loaded boot. One thing that I think we, we should pay more attention to is the use of pro wrestling techniques as takedowns because it's a wrestling art and as such is takedown focused. You mentioned that slams are banned in jiu-jitsu competitions, but there are still numerous techniques that are not just street legal and applicable for self-defense, but can be used in competition with no penalty. The slam mm -hmm. rule in IBJJF is if the takedown is one motion, then it can be a slam. So a sick double leg is uh, is not illegal, whereas something like a power bomb, where you lift your opponent off the mat and slam them, would be illegal. But more analogous to the double leg would be the Arn Anderson spine buster. And it would be a technique that is that occurs it all in one motion, and really can incapacitate your opponent. And to the point where, you know, most, you know, let, let's be real. In most modern jujitsu matches, particularly at our weight classes, people are going to try to pull guard. People are going to try to jump guard. And all I see when I see someone jumping guard is the opportunity for an Arn Anderson spine buster to deliver them to the mat. Absolutely. Or, or even if you're if you're stronger. I mean, of course, you can't do this in a competition because, again, of these castrating rules that we put on ourselves. But in a self-defense situation, I mean, you could be setting up for a Kevin Owens pop-up powerbomb, right? I mean, that'll put you in the hospital. People talk about judo being a sport that has a lot of impact. But I mean, pro wrestling allows you to take what would be relatively low impact takedowns and really juice them up. I mean, for example, yeah, maybe you can go for a fireman's carry and that sucks, right? Getting taken down that way. But you 
you try that on someone like Kurt Angle and he's not going to fireman's carry you. He's going to Olympic slam you, right? And he's an Olympian, like a gold medalist. I'm not going to tell this guy that his technique is fake or it needs improvement, right? I would much rather get taken down in the soft fashion that we see in jiu-jitsu than see the kind of violence that a pro wrestler can inflict on me, right? And so that's one of the things that I think we do ourselves a, a disservice in is not properly training these pro wrestling takedowns into our game. Absolutely. And what is a bookend or a rock bottom, if not a modified uranage, which is, for those of you that, that aren't aware of the Kodokan judo techniques, the uranage was one of the original 40 judo techniques, still one of the 67 root Kodokan techniques. And adapted for professional wrestling. Booker T wasn't the first to do it. The Rock was not the first to do it. But these Uranage throws are examples of high amplitude throws that are part of the reason we love watching competition judo, but are also applicable outside of the gi, that are also applicable in self-defense situations, and that can you know really incapacitate your opponent in a way that can end a situation as effective as a good choke can. Yeah. And the thing is, too, effective pro wrestling moves are not limited to the ones that came from judo. I mean, a lot of the moves that you might think are just too bombastic and too showboaty, you might think, oh, these would never work. But I will point out that I have seen video footage of the people's elbow being used in MMA. You can Google this, right? And I've seen video footage of the Boston Crab being used in MMA, right? Like these things actually do work. Yes, the setup can be challenging because it requires a lot of technique and finesse, but I don't think that's an excuse to not do these moves. You know, if you think about it conceptually, right? Think about a submission like the sharpshooter or the Boston Crab or the figure four. Yes, they're harder to lock on, but that just means you have to be better to get them on. Because once you get them on, because they're more involved, they're much harder to get out of. I mean, as an example, getting out of a standard jujitsu ankle lock is quite easy. It's in fact so easy that most gyms kind of don't even really give it credit and don't really focus on the ankle lock as a viable submission. But with a bit of adjustment, you can torque that ankle lock and you can change it into what Lance Storm calls the Canadian maple leaf, which is like a modified seated half ankle lock. And that is devastating. Like anyone who's been in that submission will tell you it's almost impossible to get out of. And while you mentioned Lance Storm, I think this is one of the things that pro wrestling can be almost a laboratory of democracy for experimentation with techniques. When Storm was partnered up with Chris Jericho, the thrill seekers, they never did the same finishing move twice. And so these guys really explored techniques in the way that we're taught to do as jiu-jitsu practitioners, where you take what is useful and you disregard the rest. And at the end, you end up with the Canadian Maple Leaf, something that has proven effective across all kinds of grappling genres. And that's what's great about truly truly vibrant and alive techniques is they can cross-pollinate. You talked about judo techniques going into pro wrestling. It also, or that self-defense techniques cross-applying. What is a Fujiwara armbar? If not a Gracie Jiu-Jitsu self-defense technique, it's how we're taught to defend the grab of the throat. And what this means is not, it's not really important who invented it mm -hmm. from my perspective. What, what matters is athletes that are at the top of their craft across all the combat sports can use these in the same way that an Aikido practitioner can show a wrist lock to a jiu-jitsu practitioner. That jiu-jitsu practitioner can hit that wrist lock, and it, it finishes just as well and in many ways more satisfyingly than other submissions. Yeah. And on that topic, something you brought up there was the idea of a finishing maneuver, something that, of course, every professional wrestler worth their salt will have, right? They've got one technique that they're so otherworldly good at that is basically 
basically a guaranteed fight ender. And this is a concept that is not unique to pro wrestling, right? In judo, any high-level judoka is going to tell you that they don't know all 69 throws of judo, right? They don't know all of the throws of the cannon. Most have maybe two or three throws that they're really good at. And what they specialize in is funneling people into those throws. And they actually have a term for that. They call it the takui waza in judo, which means your favored technique. So like well before most of us got exposed to the idea of finishing moves in pro wrestling, it's worth noting that in judo, they have this exact same concept. And the idea of having a finishing move is something that I think is underexplored in jujitsu, right? And I'll tell you why. First of all, because as Bruce Lee said, it's better to be really good at one technique than kind of mediocre at 10,000 of them, right? I would rather have one technique that is a fight ender for me and have a bunch of ways to get people there versus just being mediocre at a lot of things. So I think it's worth every jujitero developing their own finishing maneuver. But moreover, there is a degree of intimidation that comes with the finishing maneuver, right? If your opponent knows that you're going for your finisher, they're going to panic and it's going to create predictable responses that you can then exploit because they're going to try to get out of it, right? I mean, common examples, right? If you look at pro wrestling, right? Randy Orton with his RKO. Everyone is always on eggshells with this guy because they know he can get it out of nowhere. And that totally changes the way that they compete with him because they're always on the defense because they know he can turn anything into an RKO. So you will see when people go in there with him, they are very, very hesitant and tentative to engage him because almost anything can be turned into an RKO. And the people who do manage to successfully best Randy Orton are the ones who come up with a counter to the RKO, which frustrates him. So that level of strategy is something that in jiu-jitsu we don't think about that much. Like if you are really good, amazingly good at the go-go plata, and you can get that from anywhere, think of the intimidation that your opponent is going to experience when you start bringing your shin towards their face, right? It's going to force them into reactive mode. And that level of psychology, it's something that we see in pro wrestling. It's something we see in like poker, but it's not something that is permeated into Brazilian jiu-jitsu yet. I think this is a difference in philosophy in the arts. And psychology is definitely something that wrestling is emphasized more so than jiu-jitsu. But jiu-jitsu is also an art that's primarily about survival, right? It is a defensive art in its purest form, whereas professional wrestling is an offensive art in its purest form. Everyone is going for that finishing move. Randy Orton is looking for the RKO out of nowhere. And another thing that you said that I wanted to lift up is that because jiu-jitsu is a defensive art, one technique that, or one attitude, one modality of training that jujitsu can learn from wrestling is the ability to turn a defensive move into a counter. Because if you've ever seen a professional wrestler hit a finishing move and have it not finish, that creates such a shift in momentum in a match. And it can really psychologically destroy an opponent. And so this is why, like I always tell the early jujitsu students to focus on defense, to focus on survival, to focus on the person that can never be submitted, who can never be finished, is the most powerful person in the room. And that is a training attitude that transforms and that transforms your perspective and can also transition you across all modalities where if you end up in a professional wrestling situation where someone is trying to stone cold stunner you, if you're able to kick out to prevent yourself from being finished by one of those moves, if you're able to survive a figure four leg lock, imagine the psychological damage that that does to your opponent. That is wielding true power. 
Well, what you're talking about there, the concept of inverting and taking an attack and turning it into an attack from your standpoint, that is a concept that I would say is generally missing in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And pro wrestling is a great example, right? The idea of inverting someone's finisher so that now you're the one on the attack. The figure four being a perfect example, right? Everyone who has studied the figure four knows that it's a devastating submission, but they also know that if you go belly down, what happens? It inverts the pressure. And now you're submitting the other guy. And as great as Ric Flair was, he found himself in this trap quite often where he would successfully get the figure four, but because he was so famous and so well known, his opponents would be familiar with his strategies and they would invert, they'd go belly down, and now Ric Flair is stuck in the in the submission. And this is a mistake that I see a lot in jiu-jitsu where, yeah, if you get stuck in an armbar, yeah, it's great if you can escape, but what's way better is if you can find a way to invert that so that now the other person is in a submission. And a great example there that you brought up earlier, the mandible claw, right? I don't know why more people don't do this. If you armbar me, yeah, I can stack you. Yeah, I can hitchhiker you. But then the best case scenario for me is I've escaped. If I put you in the mandible claw and you're right in that position, if my, you've basically got my hand right up close to that mandibular nerve, if you put me in an arm bar, the best case scenario for me is I mandible claw you and now you're the one in the submission, right? That's something in jujitsu that from a strategic standpoint, we just don't think about enough. You know, one of the tournaments out here, when I, when I moved to the Northwest back from North Carolina, in North Carolina, the wrist lock was legal at all belt levels. And I moved out here and uh, one of my students quickly took to the wrist lock and was going to compete in his first tournament. And we looked up the rules and wrist locks aren't legal until blue belt. And so what I told him was, you should wrist lock him anyway. And when you get disqualified, I'll be proud of you. And that makes me think of at that time when uh, Kevin Nash's powerbomb was considered so devastating that World Championship Wrestling actually banned the maneuver for fear of athlete safety. And however you feel about that, about protecting athletes from themselves, the reality was this potent move was taken out of Nash's arsenal. And Nash's reaction was he would powerbomb folks anyway. And they would announce the win by disqualification but Kevin Nash didn't care. And that was the attitude I tried to instill in my student where, yeah, there are rules, but there's also larger truths about reality and martial arts. And by wrist locking someone or by power bombing some of them, we send the message about those larger truths. Well, this is a fascinating point and something that interestingly, back in the day in jujitsu, I think people were very attuned to, but we've lost it over time. I mean, the ultimate example of this was the Gracie Kimura match where Helio lost the match, but he won on principle just by the fact that he would not submit and he hung in there with a world-class athlete. And that concept of, you know, kind of like losing the battle to win the war is something that is so important in strategy, but we often don't think about it. You know, when I talk to BJJ competitors, they're often so caught up in how am I going to win this next tournament? Everything matters that I win this gold medal. But sometimes a disqualification makes a bigger statement than getting the medal. Like, you know, let's say that I'm in there with Andre Galvao, right? And yeah, I mean, it would be lovely to beat him and get a gold medal, but think of the kind of state, like the thing is, though, think about how many gold medals are awarded, right? There's so many gold medals, like everyone and their dog is a world champion in jiu-jitsu at this point. But what would it say if I hit him in the balls and I just beat the shit out of him for 10 minutes while he's on the ground, right? I guarantee you that's something people would remember. And that makes a much stronger statement than, you know, just another $5 medal on the wall. So again, the importance of staying true to the long-term goals and making 
making a statement, even at the expense of a short-term win, something that we don't do in jujitsu. But you see this a lot in pro wrestling where, you know, someone might intentionally get disqualified because they're trying to send a statement. And that longer-term message is more important than any given win or loss on an individual night. You know, another innovation that wrestling doesn't get enough credit over are rules innovations in with matches that have different rule sets. In jiu-jitsu, we have tournaments with different rule sets. You have your sub only, you've got your points tournaments, you've got your EBI rules, things of that nature. Your example made me think of this. You never see things like lumberjack matches, mm-hmm. where often you will see like the better athlete or the stronger athlete somehow lose to another athlete, either because of outside interference or a fluke or what have you. But you have matches that take place designed to remove those variables. The classic example, the steel cage match, the lumberjack match with you know, a dozen or so folks designed to throw people back in the ring. So for your example of, you know, you competing with someone like Galvao and having being surrounded by the whole BJJ mental models posse. And Andre Galvao, look, he's one of the best sport jiu-jitsu competitors of all time. And the guy's a double tough athlete. But is he as tough in a coal miner's glove match, you know, with a coal miner's glove on a pole? We don't know. And I think we deserve to know, the viewing public. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I think that this is an example of where we do live a relatively sheltered life in jiu-jitsu. We've convinced ourselves of how great this art is, but we've also made things very sanitary and and sterile to the point where it no longer really reflects a real fight or even just a real-world violent situation. And I guess something that I would ask you on this topic, we all know that there's always a lot of controversy around refing in jiu-jitsu, right? In jiu-jitsu, refs are constantly accused of bias or favoritism. Constantly, there are mistakes that get made that cost people a match when they should have won. My brother has been on the podcast and talked extensively about just the psychology of dealing with the ref because the ref is such a wild card variable and you have no recourse against them. And I, what I am wondering here, Jeff, and you tell me what you think, is this another area where we can learn from pro wrestling. In jiu-jitsu, do we respect the ref too much? You know, in pro wrestling, it is not out of character if it is merited to strike the ref, to knock out the ref, to intimidate the ref. Yes, of course, you'll get fined. But again, is you have to make a statement to correct the behavior going forward. You know, much like in hockey, yeah, fighting is technically illegal, but everyone does it because you need to enforce good behavior from the other team and you need to let them know that you won't stand up for certain things. In a similar manner, do you think we need to see more situations where the ref is dragged into the fight by an angry competitor in jiu-jitsu? You know, I do think that we that it is too taboo in jujitsu to interact with the referee. And I'm, I'm going to tell you a personal story that's, that's somewhat painful for me. But like, you know, I competed a lot and I wasn't the best competitor in the world, but I, I won most of the things that I wanted to win. And I, but I never, I have not yet, you know, and I don't have a gold medal from Masters Worlds. And that was the one thing that I really would like to have. And, you know, I, I trained really hard to try and achieve that goal. And, uh, when during the quarterfinals match at Masters Worlds, the last time I competed, I lost and I, you know, I was caught in a submission that I was escaping from. And as I'm escaping, I see the referee call the match and I don't understand what's going on. And of course, like I'm not, you know, I'm, I just take my loss because, you know, that's what we're taught to do in, in jujitsu. But I knew, you know, for a fact that I, that I hadn't tapped. And then later, someone told me that this ref had a twin brother and that maybe the twin was supposed to ref the match, but it just, it just felt really shady to me. It's something that's really painful. And, and so I do think that, you know, I wasn't going to do a thing 
like cause the referee to to go unconscious. But um, but it's something that does happen in professional wrestling. And, you know, I don't know, maybe we need to bring that back. Yeah, yeah. The twin brother situation is as crazy as it sounds like that has actually happened. There is precedent for that. And it's something that you need to be aware of, right? The referee is a volatile variable. And I think having ways to hold them accountable is is ideal, right? And, you know, maybe that's verbally accosting them. Maybe that's putting them in a Boston crab. But one way or the other, the referee needs to respect you just as much as you respect the referee. Something that I would actually inquire about, one of, you know, you talked about the desire to win gold at Masters. And one of the things about pro wrestling that is so different from a lot of other combat arts is longevity, right? You see a lot of pro wrestlers who are still able to go at a world-class level into their 40s, even into their 50s. I mean, for crying out loud, Sting is competing shortly after this recording, and he is over 60. And I would love to get your thoughts on this. What is it about pro wrestling that makes it so effective, even for athletes that are way past their athletic prime? You know, a lot of this, I think, can be summed up by the old school mentality, like Bruno Sammartino, right? Or Bob Backlund, people from a bygone era, continue to win world championships well into, you know, a time when most jiu-jitsu athletes have retired. And there's no master's division in professional wrestling. And so it's just, I think it's one of those things where it is just expected that you will continue to compete until the wheels come off. And, you know, jiu-jitsu prides itself on being an extremely efficient martial art, which I think is one of its big selling points. But, you know, truly, you mentioned wrestling's roots in uh, carnival entertainment and the take on all comers mentality. If all you've ever done is take on all comers and you're driving 500 and 600 miles at a clip knowing that you're just doing so to fight the next tough guy, I think it's a lot easier to stay tough into your 60s. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Awesome. And I think just the fact that these guys can still be hauling ass at that age goes to show that professional wrestling is not just about being big and strong and athletic, right? A lot of it is technique because as you get older, you will lose a lot of your athletic prowess, but the technique will remain with you. And I mean, just recently, Bill Goldberg came back out of retirement and won the world championship and actually won the WWE, I believe, and the universal championships at over 50, which is incredible after over a decade off. And that just goes to show that these techniques do not require you to be the big, strong guy that you see on television, right? These are techniques that anyone can apply if you learn them effectively. Let's talk too about the flip side to Bill Goldberg, which, you know, was an athlete before he got into wrestling was, you know, played professional football and such. One of like a guy who doesn't get enough credit is Spike Dudley. And -hmm. I think of Spike Dudley as the Bruno Malfacini of professional wrestling, where has he won a ton of matches? Absolutely. Has he lost matches? Yes, he has, but he's always come back stronger. And no matter whether he's getting put through a table by Mike Awesome or whether he's contributing to the victory in a tag team match, little Spike Dudley, despite being roughly our size, continued to shine despite, I think he was like, I think he had a second job as a teacher. He was a a math teacher. He was a math teacher. And that I think is a great example of how pro wrestling and jujitsu are not that different, right? I mean, the promise of jujitsu is that it's a martial art for the everyman, right? You can be a non-athletic person and come in there and learn how to defend yourself. And I, I mean, I'm pretty proof that the promise of jiu-jitsu pays off and it works, right? But pro wrestling is the same. I mean, Spike Dudley, a math teacher, a tiny guy, came in and hung in there at a world-class level. He went in there and fought guys like the big show, right? At a world-class level. And that's how effective pro wrestling can be as a base. Indeed. Indeed. You know, we won't talk about David Arquette winning the WCW championship belt, but that could be another example also. 
Well, let me let me maybe pivot this, right? I hope at this point we've convinced people that they need to take a serious look at pro wrestling as a base and maybe rethink some of the ingrained biases that they've developed. Assuming that we've convinced people, what are some actionable steps, some actual things that a jiu-jitsu grappler could do today, lessons they could learn to take from pro wrestling to augment their jiu-jitsu, like actionable items that we could do today? I mean, I'll start with one here, and that is understanding if you are a baby face or a heel. Now, for those not familiar with this terminology, in pro wrestling, baby face means you're the good guy, heel means you're the bad guy. And it seems on its face like this might be something that doesn't matter, but it so does, because this goes back to the psychology of things, right? Of knowing how to manipulate your opponent and getting the crowd behind you, knowing whether you're the good guy or the bad guy is so important. Like, for example, Kaotera, Definitely a babyface, a lifetime babyface. Little guy going out there talking about how steroids are bad. He literally has a baby face. Like he's the definitive babyface. But then you look at guys like Gordon Ryan. I mean, obviously a heel. He's a, you know, he can be a repugnant shithead on social media, probably on the sauce, right? Definitely a heel thing to do. If you're if you're a heel, steroids and, and heelishness kind of go hand in hand, right? So generally speaking, if you're on the sauce, you're probably a heel. Understanding this stuff matters because it also dictates what advantages you have, right? If you're a baby face, you can get the crowd behind you to psych yourself up and to intimidate your opponent. If you're a heel, it's probably going to become more natural to you to, to cheat, to intimidate the ref. So there's pros and cons to both. And you have to understand which of those two is the better dynamic for you. But it's also important to understand that you're not married to that dynamic. You can switch from one to the other. Like if you've been a baby face for years and it's getting really, really like stale and you feel it's not working. I mean, you can always just like hit your best friend in the back with a folding chair and overnight, suddenly you're going to be the bad guy and that opens up new doors to you. So I really suggest that we all be intentional about this. And as grapplers, identify whether we're a baby face or a heel and how that can benefit our game. Yeah, the Kyotera heel turn has been coming for years, by the way. It seems these days like 90% of jujitsu is composed of heels. But, you know, to, to piggyback on what you said, I would divide, like, I, I would have two buckets of advice for people who want to try and incorporate more professional wrestling into their game. And the first is watch the good stuff. Just in the same way that you buy the DVDs from the folks that you want to emulate, you got to go back and watch Smoky Mountain Wrestling. You got to go back and watch NWA videos from the territories. You got to go back and watch Stu Hart's Stampede Wrestling. The Halcyon days of the true pioneers who laid the groundwork for what we have today. These are some of my favorite things to watch to this day. And so educate yourself, you know, don't spend $250 on the new John Day and her instructional, go watch Stu Hart stretch people in the dungeon. The other thing, and I think you'll have some fun with this as well, Steve, that in both jujitsu and wrestling, I like to compartmentalize things into goals. And so for me, it's all about like what my technical goals are. And so I divide, when I try and incorporate pro wrestling into my training, I divide the four categories of moves that I think are cross applicable. And for me, that's takedowns. We mentioned a few of them. Holds on the mat, whether they be submissions or pinning combinations. Holds from standing. Professional wrestling does standing submissions in a way that you see very rarely in jiu-jitsu that we should incorporate. And finally, leg locks. You had mentioned the figure four before. I think that Ric Flair's use of the figure four was probably seminal in Danaher's leg lock system. I know Andrew Smith, who's a great black belt in Richmond, Virginia, that has a tremendous leg lock system, has drawn inspiration from the Flair leg locks. And so those are the four sort of categories of professional wrestling techniques that I analyze to try to incorporate into my game. And I'm happy to talk with you about some of those if you like. I'm sure you have your own, your own set of techniques as well. Well, you touched on something awesome there, which is 
is the concept of standing submissions. And this is something that is, for some reason, all but absent in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And I, I don't really understand why that actually is, because you would think that standing submissions would be more prevalent. I mean, you do see them so frequently in pro wrestling, and it does seem just completely bizarre that these techniques haven't really migrated into our sport. I mean, I actually asked Lance Storm about this, and you know, one of the things that he sagely brought up was that the pro wrestling abdominal stretch, it is just a standing version of the twister, right? Like you do that on the ground and you're going to tap someone immediately. But for some reason, people never think to do these techniques while standing. And that is something that is very much a pro wrestling specialty. And that's a great thing about our art that we miss, right? We think that in order to get someone to the ground, we have to do some big takedown. And, and that can be very hard. Why do you need to do that? Like go for a standing submission sometimes if you, because worst case scenario, like the Fujiwara armbar is a great example. Even if you fail at getting the submission, you can maybe use that lever to pull them onto the ground and effectively achieve a takedown that way. So it's another arrow in your quiver if you are good at standing submission, something that we don't really take in, into account in jujitsu and we probably need to adopt from pro wrestling. It's also a question of efficiency, right? You could shoot a double leg, take a guy down, pass his or her guard, wait for them to – or force them to turn on their side, take their back and rear naked, choke them. Perfectly classic submission sequence. Or you could go for the standing cobra clutch mm -hmm. and – which is very – just as much an attack on the carotid arteries, right? It cuts out the middle steps of takedown, guard pass, back exposure – submission. And you just go straight to the standing submission. If you catch them, why not catch them? And before anyone says, oh, we couldn't do that, I'm pretty sure I've actually seen John Jones do a variant of that where you did basically, not not really a cobra clutch, but I think he got someone in like a standing arm triangle position and then did a trip takedown from there. Can totally be done. So yeah, I mean, moves like the katagatame stuff that we typically think of as groundwork, totally doable from standing. And that's one of those innovations from pro wrestling that we don't adopt, right? It's much more efficient rather than taking the guy down and positionally advancing and then locking up the sub, it's much more efficient if the opening is there to just submit the guy while he's still standing up. Then also, of course, you get the great visual of the guy just kind of collapsing while you're holding him. And again, in pro wrestling, so much of it is not just winning, but how you win and creating that visual in that moment, right? So winning well and not just winning is such a great thing in terms of having an impactful career, something that you always want to do. Yeah, shades of John Jones and Lyoto Machida with the standing guillotine and dropping Machida unconscious to the mat, something that was straight out of professional wrestling. One thing I would caution folks about, though, when thinking about techniques to cross-apply is that you have to think of the origins of the art and the purpose of the art and the purpose of, of the competition because rule sets drive behaviors, right? Like in an art like judo, you can go for a drop sayonage knowing that if you mess it up, then you don't have to worry too much about long groundwork. Whereas in jujitsu, you have to worry about them getting your back and you know, having to work from a dominated position. In professional wrestling, because if you don't submit your opponent, it's an art of pinning, right? And so some of these techniques, while useful, could be useful for different purposes in jujitsu matches. And one of the things that I've been trying to work on for about a year now, like there are two techniques that are sort of my white whale that I've been working on forever. And I'm just now starting to hit. And one of those is the Flavio Canto choke, which I hit for the first time in the last year. I've been working on it since white belt, you know, judo choke, you know, developed by Kanto. The other is the sunset flip which is sort of almost, if you think about it, an inverse guard pull, right? And somebody that wants to get the fight to the mat, but wants to do so in an efficient and stylish fashion, one of the things that I'll try to do is snap my partner down. And as they try to posture up, I'll try to sunset flip them. Now in wrestling, I'm trying to get my legs over their arms in order to, to create a pinning combination. 
right? But in jujitsu, we can use this to get their elbows away from their body. Maybe we can withdraw, stand with base, and, and start to pass the guard. And so just because a technique doesn't have immediate applicability for the purpose of your competition art does not mean that that technique is useless. You can still use it for other purposes. Yeah. And one of the beautiful things about a lot of pro wrestling techniques is that they can be scaled up quite effectively in terms of impact, right? You talked about the sunset flip, which is a brilliant way to go from standing to the floor against an unsuspecting opponent. If this were a self-defense situation, you can actually take that even further and convert it into a code red, which is a sunset flip pile driver, right? That will end the fight right there. Now, of course, that's not going to be IBJJF legal, but in a self-defense situation, that is a guaranteed fight ender. And you will see in pro wrestling, most of the time, a sunset flip pile driver or a sunset flip power bomb is going to get you the three count, right? And honestly, it's a lot harder to hold someone down for three full seconds than it is to trap them in a submission for just a flash of a second, right? If you get someone down for three seconds, you know they're done. This is something I'm going to call the IBJJF about too, because here's my argument about this and, and about why something like the sunset, sunset flip pile driver being legal. Net cranks are not legal, except at the very advanced levels, right? You don't walk into a the average tournament and see the white belts and the blue belts net cranking each other. But if a choke is present, the net crank becomes legal. And the purpose for that is if you have a rear naked choke or a front guillotine on someone, they can't then complain and be like, well, that was a net crank, which is illegal. As long as the choke is present, then the legality of the choke is, is governed by the choke being present, not the actual pressure on the neck, idea being it's incumbent on the opponent to tap. So my argument then is, if that is true, then why, you know, if their neck is cranked as a result of a submission, but the submission is present, a legal technique, why is the whole technique not legal? If a sunset flip is legal, which it is, why, if their head happens to hit the ground and knock them unconscious, why is that the problem of the person initiating the technique? Well, actually, what you bring up is another brilliant heel strategy. And again, if you adopt a heel alignment, you always want to figure out ways to do illegal underhanded stuff in a way that either the ref doesn't see or they can't call because it's too close to something that's legal. The neck crank being a perfect example, right? There's You can't just grab someone's neck and crank it in IBJJF Jiu-Jitsu, but you can apply a choke that has a neck crank component and it will be legal. An example of something similar in pro wrestling, uh, Roman Reigns recently turned heel. And I've noticed that now that he's a heel, he has this new kickout where his opponent tries to pin him, his kickout, instead of kicking out with the near side arm close to his opponent's head, He'll kick out with the far side arm and uppercut his opponent in the balls while he's raising his shoulder off the mat. So not only is he breaking the three count, but he's also incapacitating his opponent. And that's legal because he's actually doing a legal technique. It just so happens that much like the neck crank guillotine, there's a bit of a, a like a slant to it, but it's enough that it would be considered legal. So again, if you're a heel, something to think about. To quote the great Boss Rutten, everybody underestimates the strike to the groin. This is also a reason why I insist that work give me my paycheck only in rolls of quarters, just in case. Like we have, I get all my fight gear from Cageside Fight Company back in North Carolina, terrific family owned retailer. And one of the things they do is they stitch what we tell people are mouth guard pouches 
inside the lining of the shorts or the gi. And what they actually are is where you can hide rolls of quarters just in case a match goes bad. Definitely, definitely. You, you always have to be prepared. I mean, especially again, if you're a heel, you always want to have loaded trunks, loaded boots. You know, luckily this technique has not really been innovated much in jujitsu yet. If you watch pro wrestling, the refs usually have the foresight to check for loaded items. But in jujitsu, that isn't something that's become commonplace yet. So you can probably get away with it and sneak it, right? Something to definitely think about. Like if you're able to, for example, something that probably a lot of people haven't thought about, what if you sew some like metal lining or something into your sleeve? You go for like a, an Ezekiel choke or something, and now suddenly you're using a weapon against your opponent that the ref doesn't even see. So that kind of underhandedness is typical heel tactics that, again, really, I think we need to cast more of a light on so that people in jiu-jitsu can start adapting them and taking the game up to the next level. It's the classic Iron Mike Sharp forearm sleeve, right? Mm -hmm. Where it's like you have a legitimate injury, you put a forearm sleeve on. Is there something else inside that forearm sleeve? I don't know. The ref doesn't need to know either. Mm -hmm. For those of you at home that may not be familiar with professional wrestling and like are, are somewhat struggling, and maybe you listen to this podcast just for the jujitsu, for, for Stephen Matt's concepts. And so you're really familiar with jujitsu, but you're less familiar with professional wrestling. And you might be struggling with this face, this baby face, heel sort of dichotomy. Let me give you an example. I think you can easily understand. The heel is the guy who doesn't wash his gi for two or three days before a competition. I've known guys that do this. And they go out there just intending to make their opponent as uncomfortable as possible to use that heel psychology that, that Steve is talking about, and in addition probably to give their, their opponent some kind of terrible disease. And that is a heelish tactic. A, a baby face would not do that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, definitely. And it is so important to understand, again, that dynamic. And also to bear in mind, don't have a fixed mindset, right? If being a heel or being a baby face is not working for you, you can always switch. Now, Jeff, one last thing I'd like to talk about. One of the more advanced tactics that you see in pro wrestling that I've never seen anyone in jiu-jitsu ever do, and maybe we need to consider it, running the razor, also known as gigging or juicing or getting color. This is the process in professional wrestling of like, if someone really wants to pull the audience into the match and add drama, or even if they want to fire themselves up or off balance their opponent, they will basically force themselves to bleed. I mean, sometimes in a real fight, of course, I mean, we watch the UFC, bleeding happens, right? But sometimes you can force this, right? You can bang your head into something. You can intentionally cut yourself, which is a tactic that a lot of old school pro wrestlers will do. They'll like hide a razor blade in the tape around their wrist. So if they want to add drama to the match, you, you cut yourself. Now, this sounds like such a stupid thing to do, right? Why would you intentionally want to add blood to a match? It's such a surface level thing. But again, this comes back to psychology, right? And pro wrestling, the one innovation behind pro wrestling that no other fight sport has achieved to the same level is mastery of psychology, right? And when you introduce blood into a fight, suddenly now it's real, right? Like that can be the motivator that fires you up. Hulk Hogan, famously, I mean, this guy was bleeding all the time back in the day when he was an active wrestler and his ability to fire himself up was so legendary that they actually called it hulking up. Like, you know, just his ability to basically come back from the brink and take over the fight just by firing himself up. Additionally, you know, again, if you want to be remembered, being the guy who won a gold medal, that's not super memorable. Everyone wins gold medals. There's tons of gold medals out there. But if you're the guy whose face is covered in blood as you're fighting Lachlan Giles in the absolutes, right? I mean, that's a fight that people are going to remember. So I'd love to talk to you a little bit about the strategies around running the razor and getting color as they could apply to jujitsu. 
You know, I think who the heirs to that strategy are in MM, modern MMA and modern jiu-jitsu are BJ Penn and Orlando Sanchez. BJ Penn, for example, famously, after getting blood on his UFC gloves, actually licked the blood. And if you want to talk about a fire-up play to the crowd strategy. That's about as, as key as you're going to get. Another iconic look too, and you mentioned the memorability factor, like who who won third place at ADCC last year? Very few people are going to know, but everybody remembers Orlando Sanchez's bloody head being covered in gauze as he went out there to continue to fight the match. So strategically, you know, there is that sort of the memorability factor, the toughness factor, the firing yourself up factor. Another thing, and I will confess to having done this in jujitsu matches, uh, to augment my cardio. Because if two minutes in, I'm fighting a, a young, strong, athletic college wrestler, I know that blood stops a jujitsu match. If I get color, suddenly I got a three-minute breather. And the, that's not going to affect the kid's cardio. But me, I need as much of a break as I can get. That's a good point. There are rules to prevent you from stalling by untying your belt to get a breather. To the best of my knowledge in jujitsu, there is no rule preventing you from slicing your forehead open with a pocket razor and buying time while the doctor patches you up, right? That's that's a perfectly legal way in jujitsu to, to get a break. I mean, the one thing too to bear in mind is you got to consider the color of your gi, right? If you're wearing a white gi, I mean, it's going to be a hell of a visual if you start bleeding, but it's just, it's going to be probably unlikely that you'll be able to use that gi again. So just something to think about if cost is a factor and if budget is a factor. It's not really a gi until you get blood on it anyway. This is a technique, by the way, everybody talked about, like one of my favorite performers of all time, the American dream, Dusty Rhodes. My dog is named after Dusty Rhodes. And Dusty was a master of using blood as a cardio technique. You know, people looked at Dusty's body and they were like, how can this guy possibly be doing these 60 minute matches? But then you looked at his forehead and you understand why. This is a person who'd been through some stuff, a person who had been through hard times and who had, had experienced adversity but use that adversity to transform himself into one of the most iconic wrestlers of his era or any era. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, I'm out of topics here. I think this was a brilliant conversation and I hope we have moved the needle on the use of pro wrestling in BJJ. I really think this is one of the most underutilized bases for any combat sport. Jeff, I would ask you any closing thoughts before we tie this up? Wrestling is an art that every culture has. And when that wrestling evolves into something that is a critical, not only self-defense art, not only performance art, but an art that practices some of the most effective techniques out there, we owe it to ourselves. It is incumbent upon us to learn, to respect, and to honor that. And so go out and watch some Smoky Mountain wrestling. Go out and watch some Memphis wrestling. Go out, some, go out and watch some old NWA from the territories. You'll be glad you did. Awesome. Awesome. And my understanding, Jeff, is that you guys in Bellingham BJJ actually integrate a lot of pro wrestling into your curriculum. If people want to learn more about that or drop by, how can they find you? You can check us out online at Instagram at Bellingham BJJ. Come by once a month for our street clothes jujitsu class, which, by the way, is pretty much the closest thing we do to professional wrestling on the regular. And uh, you can always check out what we're up to at BellinghamBJJ.com. Awesome. And of course, for us, I mean, if you want to learn more about how these pro wrestling concepts can integrate with your game, you can get on our Discord. The way to do that is by joining our Patreon. And then you can chat with me and Jeff all about this stuff. The address is patreon.com slash BJJ Mental Models. Again, that's the best way to support the show. 
and get access to our community and the premium resources that we offer, like premium strategy content, mini episodes that we release based on um, listener feedback. Really would love your support there. It makes a big difference both financially and motivationally. Again, patreon.com slash models. On this unique topic, if you're interested in learning more about pro wrestling, I would actually recommend checking out Lance Storm. Uh, for those who don't know, he is a famous retired pro wrestler who now runs one of the top pro wrestling schools out there, the Storm Wrestling Academy. If you want to learn about him and see his work, maybe get in touch and learn how to wrestle, stormwrestling.com. Again, that's stormwrestling.com. And actually, Lance offers similar feedback review services like we do, except he does it for pro wrestling versus us doing it for jiu-jitsu. Might be really interesting, actually, to send him some jiu-jitsu footage and see if he's able to provide some guidance from a pro wrestler's background. I would love to know, like, as a grappler, as a jiu-jitsu grappler, how can a pro wrestling expert like him, him basically being like the pro wrestling equivalent of John Danaher, what kind of feedback would he have to improve my game? If I could be serious for a minute, I'm going to ask Lance to fix my Fujiwara armbar. <laughs> Highly underutilized technique, but I mean, it's coming back into vogue, right? MJF is showing that the Fujiwara is no joke. I, I have been legit tapped by that multiple times. Well, you know, that's just a process of constant improvement. We can all learn from each other, whether it be jujitsu, Aikido, professional wrestling, what have you. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Jeff, so much for your time. Thanks everyone for listening. And of course, if you do have any feedback or questions, you know where to get a hold of us, bjjmentalmodels.com. Good talking, Jeff. Thanks again to all the listeners. Talk to you guys next week. 